You're listening to Video Monsters, a weekly podcast. Uh, well, uh, mostly weekly. Sometimes more, sometimes less. <sighs> All right, fine. A mostly weekly podcast of Creatures Talking Features with your hosts, Nathan Simmons and Eric Harris. Video Monsters is brought to you by the Chattanooga Film Festival and Central Cinema in Knoxville, Tennessee. Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or online at chatfilmfest.org and centralcinema865.com. And links for each of these can also be found on our pages, so be sure to follow us at Video Monster Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Hello and welcome to Video Monsters, where we take movies seriously, just not ourselves. I'm Nathan. And I'm Eric. And uh, we're, we're about to do something a little bit different than what we've done before. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about movies. <laughs> it's very different. <laughs> Stretch, I know. <laughs> <laughs> However, they are different types of movies than what we normally cover. Very specifically, uh, this is the first of our Decades episodes that we have been saying that we we're going to do. Yay! I know, we've, we're finally doing it. I've, like, I've, I was honestly a little nervous about recording this today because it's been, <laughs> I, like, some of these movies I watched almost two months ago. I was a little <laughs> Trying bit... Trying to remember some of, some of the details on them. I was a little bit worried because uh, last time we had to postpone it because my kid had the flu. And we all, no, not even almost. We had to postpone again by at least a day or two yeah. because my kid was sick again. <laughs> Our decades episodes might be cursed. They, it seems that way. It definitely seems that way. But we're here and we're doing it, and it's happening, and it's awesome. Yes, it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be awesome. Yeah. This intro was not awesome. Nah, I mean it never is though. No. We 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 kind. That's just kind of our brand at this point. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, man. I'm... Because once again, we take movies seriously. <laughs> we do not take ourselves seriously. Although I did take this assignment very seriously. Like, yes. This has been very fascinating for me. It's. I haven't been in school since like in seven years and so i haven't really like gone back to study you, you work at a school well yeah but i mean you've I been in school every day i haven't been studying film academically oh okay that makes for more sense. a very long time and so i love doing this podcast in general but it's so great to do things like this to motivate me to go back because i often forget how much i love classic films and silent films and things like it's the kind of thing that I don't often watch just for fun because it's like, oh, I could, you know, I have to really pay attention and right. I'm almost always doing something <laughs> while I'm watching movies, like doing laundry or something. So yeah, you have to like actively actively watch, watch it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just forget like how much I love the history of cinema and going back and revisiting this mo- these movies has been such a treat just to remind myself how much I actually like movies like not just (laughs) current day boom boom pow super fast-paced you know highly entertaining kind of stuff this sounds weird but i don't know i I have to remind myself how much i actually love what sounds weird is the boom boom pow super fast-paced yeah i mean you know that's kind of how cinema is cinema or just movies in general it's going back to the whole like debate that martin scorsese had about marvel films and how movies these days are designed more as like amusement park attractions which there's a definitely a place for that and i love those kind of movies but and it's funny because that's kind of how cinema started i was i was just about to say to be fair that is what cinema started out as like it was a spectacle and it was was a gimmicky kind of thing yeah and it was escapism and it was entertainment and there definitely are some very um dramatic stories that were told in the very beginning Mm. but like for the most part People weren't going to uh, to cinema to like 
to feel something. Mm. They were going because, you know, the depression sucked. Yeah, well, the depression was a little ways off from where we're at. But I'm just saying. But I mean, yeah, so it was happening during like World War One and stuff, like some of these early days of cinema. It was, the world was not a fun place. No. Like you go back. One of the things that was interesting is like doing research on a lot of these uh, filmmakers that we'll talk about today. Almost all of them had like horrible lives. <laughs> I mean, like they had children dying, and they had they were dealing with bankruptcy and just dealing with and like or like just came from poverty. And uh, some of these people just had horrible childhoods and. Um, it does feel like they're using cinema as just a means to not just entertain others, but entertain themselves or find some kind of joy in life. And, you know, they wanted to, they, they tried to make it, they imbued their films a lot of like showmanship yeah. and things, which is um, really fun. Well, and, you know, sometimes it was also just a way to work through their own stuff, kind of like yeah. stand-up comedian sure. that makes jokes about like, oh, that's actually kind of sad, but hey, if you're able to laugh at it, because, hey, you know, like, especially with uh, Chaplin's The Immigrant, it's like, oh, this is like really sad and tragic, but also Man. somehow brightens my day. Every single one of Chaplin's movies are like that, where he <clears throat> combines comedy and tragedy so well. And again, it's because he grew up in a he had a horrible childhood and grew up in poverty. And that's why so many of his movies are all about like, like, there's always a scene in every single one of his movies where he is helping out the poor in yeah. some way. Or, you know, it's, it's really dealing with like um social class and and things like that yeah we'll get into that yeah so we'll get into it. <laughs> um i know that we've talked about this a little bit on previous episodes but like all of the things that you were just talking about are kind of the reason uh why we're doing this you know it as much as we love movies as much as much as we love cinema as much as we love talking about movies i do think that it is very easy to to get lost in just the bright flashy spectacle 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 <clears throat> spectacle of current movies, you know, especially superhero films, stuff like that. But you, you lose sight of um, just how important cinema can be. And, you know, sometimes uh, the movies that we watch, we get flashes of that. But it is so easy for movies to be escapism that uh, that I think taking some time to actually fully appreciate this is the history of cinema mm-hmm. is something that yeah, we just haven't really taken time to do. Because uh, like I'm, I'm right there with you in terms of I love classic cinema. I love silent movies, and I don't remember the last time that I watched one yeah. prior to prepping for this and like going back and rewatching them. Was like, oh right, I adore these. They're mm. just, uh, uh, yeah. Well, part of this was going was happened because I was talking about like, yeah, I have a movie podcast and looking, and now that I use Letterbox, like I can go through and check decades and see how many movies I've seen from each decade. And going back anything like prior to maybe the 1950s. 50s was just paltry and i was like if i'm gonna like legitimately try to you know position myself as some sort of film critic on some level i need to go back and do more research on this and educate myself and watch a lot of these films that inspired the movies that i love Uh, like one thing that i've done is i've gone through and i've actually uh just to throw it out there i've um tallied up all the movies that i've seen from each decade so for this first decade everything up through 1919 i'd only seen one movie um at least according to letter i mean i think i've seen a few little things here and there um but like one actual like short film from this time period and it was the golem um that's yeah that was the only one that i'd seen prior to 1920s which was kind of fascinating. I don't know how many I had seen prior to uh, to our prepping for this, but I watched, I'm still counting, uh, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 
20 so yeah so i watched 20 uh, quote unquote film. Some of them are just like one minute proof of concept type of stuff. Um, yeah. And like some of them I had seen I think before. I watched 19 for this. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot easier. Uh, future decades episodes would be like, we watched two. Yeah. No, I'm going to have to cut it down a yeah. little bit on some of those other ones. Cause most of these are very short. Um, yeah. some of them are like 10 minutes. The Chaplin films are around half an hour. And then I did watch one feature length film. Um, I did not because I did not want to. Yeah, I don't blame you. Uh, well, <laughs> it's like you, you watched it enough for the both of us. I watched it because it was a looming specter. And I just kept thinking like every time I look up a film, like a list of like the best movies of the 19 teens, it was always top of the list. And it's like, OK, you know what? If I'm going to really do this, I'm diving in. I'm, I'm going to do it. And uh, that movie shall remain unnamed for I'm, I'm sure if, yeah. most people probably know what it is, but we'll get to it. I, I did not watch it because at some point I'll go back and watch it because like you, I feel like I need to. But for the sake of this podcast, eh, I figure one person's <laughs> opinion is going to be plenty. It'll be a fun conversation. Uh, <laughs> it'll certainly be something. So, so, yeah, our intention with this is not to provide a comprehensive list of every single film made during these decades. It's not even necessarily a comprehensive list of these are the best movies that you need to watch. Uh, one of the things that I am using for my guide, just in, in terms of a general, like, all right, what should I watch? Um, I'm using the 1001 movies you must see before you die um edited by stephen j schneider but even with that like looking through some of them like all right how is this movie not on the list or mm. really that's on the list um so like some of these things uh, this is just a nice you know handy dandy coffee which edition is, are you doing 2000 uh, i think it's 2012 2000 oh okay, I, think, okay. I think it went up oh to that's right that's right you're right i, I remember think. you telling me i don't know anywho it had like life of pi and, and stuff yeah. like that so yeah yeah so that's just more of just like a rough guide um i already have in general uh the movies that i want to watch for each decade mm-hmm. but again this is not going to be a comprehensive you must watch these movies it's more of just we're going to go through each decade and talk about what we watched that was made in that decade. And um, part of my intention with this, again, isn't to focus on the specific movies, but to talk about more of that, just the grand history of cinema. Because mm-hmm. uh, even just from the early days of cinema to 1919, there were already so many advancements and just so much interesting things that happened that I'm just really curious even though I already kind of know to see how some of that advances, like when actually watching these movies intentionally mm. to see how it leads from, uh, from one movie to the it's, next. It's pretty remarkable how quickly the technology advances. Oh, in it's filmmaking. So like this is still a fairly young medium. I yeah. mean, you know, it's, it's a hundred years old essentially at this point. I mean, just, I guess 120, which is why it fits within our 12 month <laughs> decade thing. Um, that was the uh, the other reason is just trying to think about, all right, what are we going to do? And especially thinking about our new um, decade and kind of. Yeah, it was a new decade, uh, but I was also thinking about our um, our, our pre-Halloween, pre-Halloween, <clears throat> man, me word no speaky good. I mentioned my kid was sick, right? You did. Okay, good. <laughs> the, the episodes leading up to Halloween. This is going to put the uh, the 90s and early 80s, the, uh, the decades sh- that we cover. So I'm, I'm mostly just looking forward to that, discussing some it's 90s kind of an overlooked movies. period in, the, in that. It's, it's kind of the period where people are like, yeah, the 90s horror sucked. And the early 2000s was when it was all remakes and the PG-13 stuff came through. So that'll be pretty fun to kind of go back and find 
some of those hidden gems that don't really get the credit they deserve. Yeah, I am super looking forward to that. Um, All right, oh, yeah. So uh, no, also, I wanted to mention briefly because you're what you're going through the 1001 movies you must see before you die. Those are not all of the ones that I am watching. Correct. In fact, yeah. I think I only watched one or two of the ones that were listed. But that's part of your research. It, yes, it is just a rough reference. Uh, a lot of it is also just mm. looking something up on YouTube <laughs> yeah. and just letting it play. And start right, I guess I'm going to tag that one next. One of the things that I did is I've been watching um, this series. You can it's on Hulu. It's a documentary series called The Story of Film and Odyssey by Mark Cousins. And um, basically each episode goes through a different decade, starting with, you know, the beginning of cinema all the way through modern day. And it, it, that one came out in 2004. I think that's what I was thinking of. So, so what you're saying is they stole our idea before <clears throat> we came up with it. Uh, sure. Even though I'd watched parts of this before, like in when I was in college. So uh, and I used bits of it in like some of my research papers that I wrote. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a really fantastic series. And Mark Cousins has this amazing voice and he narrates it. Um, but it's, it was a great way to, you know, kind of get just a general overview of the history of cinema and also like, you know, get some ideas for movies to watch for it. Yeah. I learned a lot of, uh, like about a lot of filmmakers that I'd never even heard of through that. Yeah. Um, and since you mentioned that, uh, you watched that in preparation for not just the series, but also using it as research for some mm-hmm. of your papers, we're treating this kind of like a super crashy crash course of the history of cinema. Mm. Um, that does not mean that like you should use us as <laughs> your no, no, crash no, course yeah. for cinema. This is basically, we're going through film school and this podcast is our reflection paper. Exactly. This is our, our essay, I guess. Yeah. Means. Like, you know, we, and, we, and it's probably like, we'll get like a C plus on it probably. You um, know? <laughs> I'm, I'm, maybe a B. I'm shooting for B minus. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Aim for the stars. Maybe. We, <laughs> We uh, we're just two dudes who love movies, and so us talking about these, you know, you're not going to get some of these like super in depth, like oh yeah, my great great grandpappy told me about the time that he was on set with. <laughs> no, this is just oh man, we we love movies, and so here, join us. Let's let's talk about them. So uh, yeah, so let's talk about them. Let's do that. Let's talk about them. So what I love so much about really quick. Oh wait, we are okay. probably not <laughs> going to list every single movie that we saw. Uh, again, you know, between the two of us, we watched what forty movies. Yeah, we almost. have we have definitely have a lot of overlap, but yeah. I'd say somewhere around thirty ish. So so we're not going to list all of them. But if you do want, uh, if you want to follow along with all of the mm-hmm. movies that we're watching especially for these decades episodes, be sure to follow us on letterboxd. Uh, you can follow me at the gargoyle and uh, Eric, what's your letterboxd handle? I'm at Eric J a Y. And on mine, I've like, if you look at my tags, I've created tags for each decade. And that's, that's not all the movies I've seen in those decades. It's specifically the movies that I'm watching for these podcast episodes. Right. And I've already gone through the 1920s and watched a bunch of those. And, I'm starting my research on the 30s now. Yeah, and I, I will probably uh, create a list, maybe. I still need to, to work on how I manage stuff on Letterboxd. I'll probably end up creating a list and put uh, all of the ones that, that I've watched on there. Maybe I'll also do a, a podcast list, listing all of them for both yeah, of us. That'd be good. Yeah. All right, so you were saying So, things. yeah, I was just going to say, what I love most about these, the the beginning of cinema is how it was kind of immediately a global phenomenon. Like it's, it almost feels like cosmic intervention where it was like you had Edison over here in the States kind of developing, stealing things, of course. Yeah. Developing these photographic techniques (laughs) and, you know, working on the Nickelodeon developing, developing. Yeah. Was that on, was that on purpose? I mean, sure. Okay. Why not? (laughs) I mean, come on, come on, Eric, don't be so negative (laughs) on yourself. Yeah. 
that was good i'll give you i'll give you credit for that one i like that okay sorry um focus then you have the lumieres who are they're all basically just you know going off of the um photography and zoetropes and trying to develop this into um something more and kind of this uh there's this discovery of if you put a series of images together and move them really fast it looks like they're in motion and um i don't know it's just kind of fun it feels like cinema was really discovered all over the world at once as if it was done by fate um yeah it really is one of those things that like if you if you were doing like a heavy research who was the father or grandfather or it's really hard whatever. to pinpoint yeah anything like anything you can go back like just to hear and like well i mean they wouldn't have done this were it not for this and they mm. wouldn't have done this were it not for this and and all these different people were developing their own uh, cameras and stuff. Like, yeah. like we'll talk about George Melier, and he tried to buy cameras from the Lumiere brothers, and they're like, no, we just want to keep it ourselves. We don't really, like, this is just kind of a, a thing that we're doing, an experiment. You know, we don't really see any kind of future in this. And so Melier is like, okay, I'll just invent my own camera. So, like, all these people are inventing not only, like, different cinematic techniques, but literally inventing different ways to tell these stories and ways to film them which is just kind of fascinating and, and so many of these people are not even storytellers like a lot of the innovators are like chemists and uh inventors and um you know illusionists yeah. which is kind of fascinating well and also different ways to present them i mean you've got you've got uh, some that have like the the dialogue with the um you know, with like the text screens that come up mm -hmm. saying what other people are saying. You've got some that have no dialogue whatsoever. You can only go based off of what you see. You have some, especially like Moyer, who would like actually paint the, uh, the, the frames. And so like they added color yeah. into what you were seeing and just, I, God, I love early days of cinema. It's so fascinating. Yeah. And w the thing I love most too is like movies more than just about any other medium medium have always felt very magical. And there's everything about movies in the early days is essentially born out of magic tricks. I mean, like we said, it's all designed to be trick films. Uh, you know, some of the first horror films, like there was, uh, I think it was called Mary Queen of the Scots or something. It's like a an image of um, Mary being beheaded on a guillotine. And they showed that film and people thought that someone was actually murdered, but they just, you know, you know, used the, the first like real camera trick, which was to just stop, not move the camera put a dummy in there and then drop it and edit it together. And it looks like it just drops and cuts a person's head off. Yeah. And um, it's just fun. Like how so much of so much of cinema in the beginning was just designed by magicians and how all of it is really an illusion. Well, and I think that's inherently of, magical. I, I, that's one of the things that even though I am so glad that I live in 2020 rather than uh, 1890, mm -hmm. Um, that is one of the things that I do feel like is lost on, on current cinema goers, you mm -hmm. know, like just about everyone sometimes, you know, in, in appropriate analytical discussions, other times, and just annoying, like, oh, shut up sort of ways talks about, well, how did they do that? Mm -hmm. And, and again, it's the ones who are like, oh man, that's fascinating. How did they do that? Those are the ones that are fun to talk to. It's like that. I know what they did. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't care, dude. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like whenever you go to a movie, it's people don't have that same sense of spectacle. Probably yeah. the closest would be back with um, um, Blair Witch Project, where like since that was one of the first uh, found footage movies, people thought that it was real again. Mm -hmm. But like you, you don't get that anymore. You don't have that same sense of what I see happening on the screen 
is really happening. And that's probably a good thing because there are some terrible things shown on the screen that we don't want people to think are real. Uh, and that also is one of the things that it's just so magical about kids watching movies like yeah. before they really understand. But in terms of just like general audiences, you you don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. But early days of cinema, yeah, they thought things were real. And part of that, I think, is because uh, sort of that bridge between things like the uh, Nickelodeons and Zoetropes and just some of those moving still images to actual moving images yeah. was Edward Mybridge. Um, and like those were some of the very first films actually shot of things like horses running. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was also used for biology in terms of, oh, yeah. when a horse runs, not all four feet are on the ground at the same time. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so like it was a little bit more scientific. And so what you saw is what was happening. And so I think that that potentially led to, well, if what I see is happening, then what I see happening here must be happening. Yeah. Also, really quick, because I don't know how much more we'll actually say about Edward Mybridge. Fascinating. I, I think that he made huge advancements that definitely uh, propelled cinema. And then almost instantly started filming naked people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> to... <laughs> Just to add context, it's not like it's designed to be lurid or anything. It's not pornography. It's not porn. It's the same reason he was filming, like, the horses. It was to study movement. And, like, he even filmed himself naked. Yeah. Um, It's it's just hilarious. It's like, here's this new technology. What can we use it for? Naked people? Sure. Naked people. Yeah. (laughs) In fact. That's why cinema exists, Nathan. So when we started doing our research and uh, Eric stalks me on Letterboxd. I do. Yeah, I really After I posted or after I um, uh, cataloged, whatever, uh, some of the early MyBridge films that I had seen, Eric sends me a text. So you've been watching porn, huh? (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, I mean. That was what you kicked it off with. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, if I've got to sit through these old movies, I guess, you know, I've got to have some excitement. How, I mean, how can you not, not watch Naked People? <laughs> the fascinating thing, especially the dudes in his film, are jacked. Yeah. Like, man, I, I guess that's what, you know. He wanted not, perfect specimens. I mean, you know, he, he I, wanted to be able to see those muscles pop so you could really, you know, examine how they move under the skin. But it's crazy because, like, you see pictures of, like, if you saw a picture of a railroad, railroad worker in the 1800s, You'd be like, oh, that dude looks all frail, and how can he even lift a shovel? Mm. And then you watch MyBridge's film of, here's a naked dude and all 8,000 of his (laughs) muscles. Just, oh, that's what they have under their baggy clothes. Fascinating. (laughs) He could use a trim. Oh, man. Um, The other thing that I really love about... (laughs) Just jumping off there. The other thing that I really love about early cinema is how we talked about that because there was no sound um yes. you, they couldn't really record sound or they couldn't really synchronize they could record sound but they couldn't synchronize it necessarily with the moving pictures um because you had to rely on things like intertitles and it like it was inherently a visual medi- medium right from the beginning and it almost like emerges as a universal language right from the get-go yeah and you know like that's that kind of stuff still reverberates to this day i mean we st- we still now like want movies to show us things rather than tell us things uh, most of the time. And so because it is, I mean, yeah, pretty well, most of the time I like dialogue, but, but like, it's just great because even it doesn't matter, like going through a lot of these early films, it doesn't matter if they were French or German or um, Russian or American, like 
you can immediately put on one of these films and understand everything that's happening. And anyone from any country could watch any of these films and still have a pretty good idea of what story they're trying to tell or what they're trying to document in these films. So that's like, I don't think there's any other way to tell stories that is so immediately just universal. Yeah. Um, which is just, I don't know. I love that about, about the silent cinema and the way that you had to use the camera to try and, tell a story visually like one of the movies that i watched that really surprised me is this movie called the little match seller um and it is like uh, it's from james williams or williamson uh should probably you, pull you know you can pull that up on your phone i can um <laughs> and it's fascinating because it was like the first sincere attempt i think to really try and tell a narrative story without any kind of subtitles or anything to tell it all visually and it's about this little girl who's like out in the snow and she's cold and they use, uh, they like superimpose images over her head to express her like inner thoughts. And um, like, it's really sad. It's one of the first like dramatic uses of some of these techniques. Cause usually, you know, like we said, it was designed to trick people into thinking, you know, something crazy was happening. But in this case, it was, um, it's from 1902. Um, and uh, it uses like double exposure to show um this little girl longing for a fire like you see a fire show up on the wall behind her and the fire will kind of come close to her to show that she's cold and she wants to be warm and then she'll see food like food will pop up on the wall behind her and it'll come to her and then it goes away and then in the end this little girl dies and like an angel appears over her and takes her up to heaven and it's really like that's really genuinely sad. moving wow um and it's just kind of fascinating to see like how even in the early 1900s people were really pushing the limits of this medium and trying to find what like they're using double exposure where you had to shoot the little girl um against this wall first and then they had to run the maybe the, use the word film, film this little girl oh yeah my bad film yeah um <laughs> but yeah it's it's genuinely like really heartbreaking and it's i don't know it's just like one of those great building blocks to show how you can tell a story visually and how i mean just the way that we um built upon that is fascinating yeah um one of the things that that i love so much about early cinema especially like what you were just saying with the stories had to be shown rather than told uh you know because like the ones that i watched there was definitely a mixture of uh like some of them did have some more dialogue dialogue ish you know they had the the title screen saying what the characters were saying but then there were some that did not use those at all. And you could only go based off of what you were seeing. And I feel like uh, where that was especially present was in George Moyet's films. And I've, I've always loved George Moyet. Like, A Trip to the Moon has always had a special place in my heart. And uh, that special place in my heart was only strengthened by that Hugo film from however many years ago. Oh, it man, came I out. really need to, I didn't really care for that movie that much. The first time I watched it, it was like beautiful, but I thought it was really I slow. I loved it the first time. I love all the stuff with Melier. Um, ben Kingsley's great. But I actually went back and watched um, the montage scene where it shows like Melier's life story. And the way that they recreate some of the stuff in that movie is just incredible. I really want to go back and rewatch it. I feel like I'd like it a lot more. I, I loved it the first time. I love it every single time that I watch it. It's, it's a just, kid's movie that's about like appreciating cinema. And yeah, it's well, a, like a call to action for preservation, which is fascinating. And uh, that's something else that I'll try to remember to come back to in a second with even in these early days of cinema, you already had some self-referential movies about movies, but we'll get to that in a second. But uh, but yeah, with Moyet's stuff, 
there was no dialogue. Like mm. maybe there was a title screen to just to set know, it. I don't but think he really used intertitles because what he would do, he would at, like at his screenings, he would give out pamphlets. Like mm-hmm. if you go on Wikipedia or something, look up the stories, you can see all these characters have names and all there's like all this detail in it, but that you don't actually get in the film itself. But you also don't um, need those details. To right. Enjoy yeah. It. You don't it's, need any of that stuff. But like, it's just kind of interesting because he would make, you know, a, a showcase out of it. He would give well, out pamphlets and, and like make it into a big show and then have the movie and it, yeah it's awesome. here's one of the things that i love about that though is in his uh in his films especially the ones that, that have more than one person so you actually have people talking mm-hmm. like there will be conversations you can see them talking back and forth about things you don't know what they're saying but yeah. at the same time you know exactly what they're saying because of all the context mm-hmm. and like oh my god his set designs are just so fascinating and beautiful and the amount of stuff that he had to do in camera and the amount of stuff that he had to do in post like he's one of the uh one of the first movie directors that actually quote fixed it in post in (laughs) terms of like actually trimming things out painting stuff on it frames and and his films are so so beautiful um and there actually is a uh, a chattanooga connection with george moyer in a very roundabout way because of Smashing Pumpkins Tonight Tonight video uh-huh. with the set design oh, uh, yeah. by I Wayne never, White. I never actually uh, put that together, but yeah, that is absolutely like uh, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Like the art in that is absolutely derived from, yeah, well, from and, Melier's work, I would yeah, say. Yeah. And, and it was done by huh. uh, Wayne White, uh, the, the guy that also did the, the stuff for Pee Wee's Playhouse. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They had uh, a documentary about him like a couple years ago or so. Yeah, he's um, a Chattanooga native. That's right. That's cool. I had no idea. Um, man, Melier, he he's really the first person to... He, he's the first master of mise-en-scene. Yes. Really. Like, his sets are extraordinary. I absolutely love this period of time where, like, you have um, stories by, like, Jules Verne and Edgar Rice Burroughs where it's science fantasy where it's like we didn't really know that much about space, so we just made shit up. And like it's just <laughs> like so much fun. You can take a train to the sun. You can take a train I to the sun. It. And man, I absolutely love the way in uh, the Impossible Journey, um, the way that like the sun is depicted and how there's like petrified like gouts of fire. And also, I love the fact that they have to they have to set a fire on the sun to melt the ice, which is <laughs> absolutely hysterical. It's just silly. As and I love to like how like when they land on this planet and like in the uh, a trip to the moon is his most famous. Um, I think I like the Impossible Journey a little bit better though. They're such great. Like they they work so well together. Well, I, that, um, that was going to be something I come back to in a second. But yes, continue. Your um, but I love to how like they just fall off the surface and fall back to earth and then they go on underwater adventures and, I mean, them that's and how it like works. it's so it's so fun and it doesn't matter that it, it's not scientifically accurate because there's just so much imagination on display in these movies to the point that they even to to this day they feel so otherworldly especially yeah. with them being hand painted and they're just gorgeous and mesmerizing and like i can see why people would think that they're slow because they're like the shot length Those for, people are wrong well the shot length i mean a scene can be a p- bunch of people talking for like two minutes straight yep. but and the scenes are so detailed and beautiful like how hand painted everything is that like i just want to stare at the screen well and the way and that he would infuse, absorb everything the way that he would infuse uh like those painted backdrops but mm-hmm. like also have a hole uh cut into the painting so that people were actually like going through a door 
but that's yeah. obviously where the painting ends and it's just and he, he used miniatures and oh, forced perspective God, and matte paint i mean like it is absolutely he's absolutely he's brilliant i mean like it's amazing that he was doing some of this stuff in in the 18 like before 1900 he was yeah. doing this stuff well and he also is i would dare to say one of the first masters of horror because yeah, he, he did, did a lot of sci-fi fantasy, but he also did a lot of really horrific things. And well, the haunted- not, not necessarily horrific, but he was one of the first to actually tap into horror with like the feeling of mm. horror, not just, oh, there's a monster. Well, his movie, The Haunted Castle, is widely regarded to be the first horror movie. And even though it's like, I, that was one of the ones that I watched. And it's even though everything in it is played for comedy... Um, I mean, it's definitely, it's dealing with ghosts and these ghosts are showing up and playing tricks on these two soldiers and you got skeletons popping in and turning into bats. And then in the end, the way that they win is by like using a crucifix to drive the devil away. (laughs) And so, yeah, I mean, it is absolutely treading in iconography that it becomes the horror genre. Yeah. It's, God, it, it is, I, I, there has not been anything of his that I've seen that I have not enjoyed. Uh, and to what you were saying earlier of uh, how well A Trip to the Moon and The Impossible Voyage tie together, there was also a third one that he did um, called... Is it The Astronomer's Dream? Yes, The Astronomer's Dream. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that I said it appropriately. Which was originally called A Trip to the Moon. Well, uh, if you watch all three of those together, like it plays almost like a feature-length film. Like Watching all three of those put together, it's roughly 40 minutes, so it might be just shy of what can technically be considered a uh, feature length. Yeah. But like you have, he, he basically did a trilogy before. For, yeah. I think anyone was really thinking about how one of the films that they're doing would tie into the next one. And yeah, they're basically telling the same story, but yeah, it's about this astronomer's dream to travel into space and uh, and travel to the moon. And so he does travel to the moon, but there are creatures there. And so he's like, all right, Let's try the sun next. And I I don't know if... uh, I love the... Astronomer's Dream was 1898. Trip to the Moon was 1902. And and uh, Impossible Journey was 1904. Yeah, Impossible Voyage. Voyage, yeah. Yeah. Well, sometimes it's called Impossible Journey, too. Yeah, whatever. Uh, All these movies have like 12 different titles. It really did play like a trilogy. And I just... I I love that. I love that he created ongoing stories. And what's brilliant about, especially uh, Trip to the Moon and The Impossible Voyage, where one, they're going to the moon, the other going to the sun. They're basically the same story, just different, you know, celestial bodies that they're going to. Um, But And different ways of getting there. Different ways of getting there, yeah. Impossible Voyage, I love how... um, they are using a train. I love how they have to go on a journey to like, they have to go through all of this stuff to get just to, to get where to the, the train, train is. Yeah. It's just, but the kind of warms my heart. What's so beautiful about watching those movies back to back is there's a, a nice symmetry to them. And like with uh, a trip to the moon, um, all of the action goes from left to right. And then in um, the impossible voyage, all of the action goes from right to left. Which I think is very interesting. Like all of the, every bit of the action, it goes the opposite direction. So like well, they're designed to be counterparts to one another. That's also fascinating because if you think about most diagrams of the universe that you see, or not the, the universe, most diagrams of um of our what's the word I'm looking for? The solar galaxy? system. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. Like nope, not that big. Bring <laughs> it down. Most diagrams of our solar system, you see the sun starting at the left and all the planets going to the right. Mm-hmm. With the moon to the right of Earth. Yeah. So, that's like, true, yeah, that's, that's you know, it kind of makes sense. I wonder if there, a, there was intentional in that way. I doubt it. Um, 
I also love he he's one of the first people to use the x-ray effect where like you'll see people enter a building and then it will the buildings like the facade of the building will dissolve and you can see inside it. Yeah. Um, which I think is really cool. Like you can, they do that with the train and then with the uh, their icebox that they brought with them to the sun so they can stay cool and then get frozen <laughs> then instantly in. Instantly freeze. <laughs> I love and man, that. The creatures the creature design too. Like he has this creature when they go back into the sea that's like I, I can only describe it as an octopus. Because it's an owl octopus. Oh, I would just describe it as a kraken. I guess it is a kraken, but it looks like an owl. Um, but man, like just the the effort that he put into that and the way that he built, you know, this, he built this studio that's basically like a greenhouse where it's all glass side. So that way, no matter what time of day it is, he'd always have enough light for his films. And like, he's truly the first person to tr- like really dedicate himself to the art of filmmaking. Um, but there's one other person that was kind of a contemporary of his that I want to talk about that I don't, before you do, yes, if we ever do a series focusing entirely on George Moyet, uh-huh. oh, I want it to be during May, George Mayer, Melier, 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 May, George Melier, um, okay. But yeah, I just want to point out too, though, that, um, Melier was not the first person to, create a narrative film that um distinction i mean again it gets kind of fuzzy but uh, i think his it's, narrative though was also so fantastical oh yeah and and like he's also i think a visionary that he's more of like an outlier oh for sure just for in sure. general um one other thing we haven't talked about too is like all of, almost all of these early films are genre films like so much of them are horror and fantasy and sci- sci-fi to a certain degree um, or at least have some kind of fairy tale element to them. Like most of the, a lot of early films were fairy tale, literal like fairy movies. Yeah. Um, but um, there's a contemporary of his um, in France, and her name is Alice Guy Blachet, and she's credited as the first female filmmaker. But she's also kind of the first filmmaker in general in terms of narrative. Um, she worked as a stenographer for the Gaumont Film Company in France, and. Um, she was there actually when the Lumiere's Lumiere brothers um, did their like uh, first uh, exhibition of the projector that they built at, with like the what is it the workers leaving the Lumiere factory? I don't know. Um, and when she saw it, she was bored by it, and she was like, <laughs> "Hey, but this is cool. I c- we can do this and make stories out of it." And because she worked for this film company, she just asked her boss like, "Hey, can I borrow this a camera?" And she started making movies. Um, and then ended up becoming the head of production for the Gomont Film Company. Um, or, f- like, film production. Right. Not, like, camera production. Right. Um, and she, the first movie, like, narrative feature is called The the Cabbage Fairy. And it's, like, 1896 or so. Um, which ended up being remade multiple times by her because it's, like... I guess the film prints end up getting lost or, you know, as advancements happen, it's like, Hey, I can redo this and make it better. Like Melier did this all the time too, remade so many of his films. Um, but she made, uh, I watched a few of her films. There's one that I really like called the consequences of feminism. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like seven or eight minutes long and it's basically just showing, um, it's a gender switch where it shows like 
women going to work and smoking cigars and having a good time. And then it shows all the men at home doing like all the daily household chores and that kind of stuff. And it's played for comedy because I feel like at that time you kind of had to for men to accept it. Right. Um, But I just love the idea that like she was so progressive because consequences of feminism, I want to say was is 1906. Um, and it's just so weird to see something so progressive so early on in history. And I like the idea of how, like, it, whenever she played this film for people to see, this is probably the first time women were even exposed to the idea of, like, oh, maybe, maybe I could do more than just, like, bow down to my husband and, you know, do all the stuff at home. Like, I, I just, I love the idea that cinema is also exposing people to new ideas and new things that they never would have been exposed to or even considered beforehand because of the lives that they lead and how, you know, women were so confined, confined to the home during this time that I don't know. I just love that. Yeah. And I'm sure that, uh, I'm sure that the men who watched it were probably like, yes, this is exactly the consequences of feminism. This is why we must squash in every corner. But based off of what you've said about it, because uh, I've not had a chance to watch any of her films, uh, and the other one that you were describing, which I want you to mention um, in just a second, because mm-hmm. it sounds fascinating. I need to go back and watch some of her films, mm. but it almost feels like she was making the, uh, the title like very ironic and very satirical in terms of like, it feels like subterfuge almost like, well, yeah, the men will think this is all a lark, but the women are secretly like, Oh, okay. Well, like, yeah. Like even though the men might see this. it as dangerous, like, Oh yes, this is the dangers of feminism. We're going to be in the house doing all the work. Mm. It might've also been like, Hey girls, look, this is the quote, consequences yeah quote of feminism you, you get to have fun and not just you know you only re- do what the man tells yeah, you to you do. can read into the uh read into the title a few different ways yeah it's that's very uh, fascinating i i like that like but man that a lot. alice kiblache she's a fascinating figure in in history in general like she's just such a badass and she <laughs> she created one of the first uh, american film studios and um she also did this the other like her most famous film i think is called falling leaves um which i i think was 1912 um but it's like a story about this little girl who learns that her sister has tuberculosis and she overhears the doctor say that her sister will be dead um by the time all the leaves have fallen so um this little girl, her name's Trixie, and she goes outside. Like she hears this, and she comes up with this plan to go outside. And as the leaves are falling, she starts tying them back onto the tree. And this little girl is just the sweetest thing in the world, and it's just like so heartwarming to see, and so like sad at the same time um, to see this. But you know, as she's tying the leaves back on the tree, this doctor shows up with a serum that cures her sister, and it's just the sweetest little film. And like it, it's one of those other things that for me is so magical about filmmaking and it's that they are designed at least most artistic art most artists the intention behind a lot of their films is to generate empathy yeah to see things from other people's perspectives and to really feel for people and to be able to put yourself in their shoes and I just love like, and that's what I love so much about Charlie Chaplin, who we'll talk about, I'm sure. Like, oh yeah, that, that was so, going to be like probably the the next thing. So, so warm and empathetic yeah. and beautiful, and that is the true magic of movie movies, I think. And what really is kind of their artistic value um, is being able to. Tr- they're just so transportive. Yeah, and that like honestly, that one sounds so sweet that as soon as we're done recording, I'm gonna watch that. It's, a, it's really adorable. Yeah, and it's only what like 12 minutes, I think. It's, yeah, it's, it's, not really, it's pretty short. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's a really good segue into into Charlie Chaplin, and 
I mean, like, yes, of course, anyone who has ever watched a movie probably knows about Charlie Chaplin. There's not a ton that we can say about him. Although, uh, there probably is also, like, a ton that we can say about him just because, like, it's Charlie Chaplin. There's so, so much that we can say because he – one of the things that I love about, again, early days of cinema is how many actors – were also the directors or how many directors were actors in terms of like yeah. Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. And, um, you know, like they were directing what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Some of it was probably because they had a story that they wanted to tell. And so they wanted to make sure that it was told appropriately and they knew the story. So they just were the actor. Other times, uh, especially in the case of some of Buster Keaton's things, it was probably more of a safety of just, okay, <laughs> I know what I'm doing Someone else will probably hurt themselves. I know where the camera has to be. I know how this has to be set up. Just trust mm. me on this. Um, but well, yeah, Chaplin was just such a perfectionist. Yeah. Like he did everything on his movies. He was the star. He acted. He directed. Or he, yeah, he directed. He composed the music a lot of times. Mm. Um, like he is one of the first, like really true auteurs of cinema, where he was completely in control of almost every aspect to the point like that people hated him for it because it took him forever to make his movies man can you imagine if stanley kubrick uh was alive back in the 1800s and oh no that's charlie chaplin is the is the kubrick of of the early 19 of like early cinema for sure hopefully with less abuse of his uh actors Uh, and actresses i said hopefully it's that's the sad thing about some of the like his movies are so empathetic and it's almost like a dream of the person that he really wants to be because later in life he was so he was he was kind of not the best person and he had an appetite for very young women well which is unfortunate it is unfortunate especially considering the ending of the immigrant yeah (sighs) man the immigrant is really lovely but the ending of it really soured me on it quite a bit because at the end of that movie he's met this woman and they're outside the like marriage office and she doesn't want to get married she's like (laughs) keep saying no and he literally drags her into the office to marry her and it's like oh yeah that's a little so yeah i was i was a little uncomfortable with the ending the part of just like oh but it's such a sweet story overall Part of me was also rationalizing, like, I would, was she, like, I mean, was she being, like, no, I do not want to get married, and he is forcing her, or was it more of just a, oh, but we just met, and yeah. blah, 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 and, like, was he going th- with a much more practical, like, look, we're immigrants, it's going to be safer for us if we're married, just trust me on, like... I think I'd, it's designed like to be to very think, playful, and, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, obviously, there's not, like, you know, malicious intent behind it, but it is, it just feels a little... Uh, it feels a little cringy context changes over the span of 120 years uh one of the things that you mentioned in talking um about about chaplin with he uh he composed his own music you know charlie chaplin charlie chaplin movies were around the time that the music that you uh, the music that you're hearing is the same music that people initially heard when they were watching the film. Cause mm-hmm. like the music is tied to the film. Cause like most of these, uh, most of the shorts that we watch, most of the films that we watch, no idea whether or not the music that's being played, uh, were the same songs that were being played originally, you know, whether it be through, uh, just a person on a piano mm-hmm. or like a minor orchestra. Cause yeah. you know, like sometimes it was just classical music that they threw on top of it. Yeah. Other times a lot of those compositions playing a piano. A lot of those compositions were lost over the years, and then so many of these movies ended up falling into the public domain. And 
having all kinds of other alterations to them and stuff. So like, it's really hard to find. I mean, all of them are read. Most of them are readily available. Um, but you like for a lot of these, I had to search through multiple different versions of them to find a version that like had music that really fit it or. Yeah. Like one of the, uh, actually looked good. Cause a lot of these, the print, like because of the <laughs> being in public domain, they're, the quality degraded so much over time. The, the version of the immigrant that I saw on YouTube was incredible looking. Oh, like man, it was gorgeous. When we get into, uh, especially the twenties, some of these movies, uh, I, I started watching, um, Oh, what was it? Um, Phantom carriage started watching the Phantom carriage and the version that I was watching on YouTube. My wife said, I, are you sure this is like the, it, that, it looks too clean. Like, yeah. is this a modern movie? I'm like, no, it's, it's crazy. I, don't, I mean, I don't think that it is. And like, I had to look through some stills to make sure that it wasn't like a recreation of the movie. Cause it, it, it had a, uh, a very clean uh, print of it. It's, it's always surprising to see that too, because so many of the, like, I think it was, it's estimated that almost like 90% of all silent films are lost forever because of how volatile the nitrate film stock was that they originally used. Some of them are just, some of these movies would literally just burst into flame. Yeah. <laughs> like it's crazy. Um, so it's always surprising to see. So two such things. A crisp print. Thing number one. For transfer. With with the music, cause like the copy of Impossible Voyage that I watched, I know it had nothing to do with the actual music uh, that was originally played because it had like drums. And at one point at all, I think it had a synth. Uh, so like <laughs> I, I know the music was not right at all. It worked, but also it's like I'm not I don't really care that much about the music. But yeah, like especially when you start getting into Chaplin films or Buster Keaton films or just, you know, once you start getting into the. I'd say probably what, like 1915, 1916, maybe, maybe even like 1914-ish. Uh, like that's when you start having the music actually go with mm-hmm. uh, what it is that you're watching. Yeah, that's true. That's when they really did start actually composing, like making scores specifically to be viewed with yeah. an orchestra. With the other thing that you mentioned of how flammable films were uh, since this announcement has been made, this is also part of... It's a very interesting tie-in that as we're talking about the early days of cinema and how fragile some of these films were and how many of them have been lost and how much of an experience it was for people to see these. And like, I don't think that there was a wide distribution. So like, I have no idea how many people actually saw Mouillet's films when he first made them, but surely it wasn't a global release. Mm. Like there's no way that everyone saw them. And so more people are probably watching them now than ever could have watched them during his lifetime and how fascinating that is. And, and how that I, I feel like just adds a, a lot of history and just a lot of um, it just adds so much to that history of cinema. And one of the films at Chat Film Fest is going to be destroyed after its one and only <laughs> viewing. Yeah, it's fascinating. I love it. It will be it. become a lost film on purpose. Yes, I love it's very it. Interesting. It's <laughs> God, it, it still hurts me a little, but my love for that. I, I think is starting to outweigh my like, no, it's just so, you're destroying it's placing it. the focus so much on just the experiential nature of film and like yeah. actually making it something very communal and, you know, literally once in a lifetime kind of thing. Yeah. So th- the more that I think about it, the more I'm a hundred and 95% on board. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so the immigrant was really fun. I like that one quite a bit. Um, I liked the uh uh the dog's life a dog's life uh, a, a dog's d- life a dog's life a dog's, a dog's life. life is so fun this is the first movie that he had where he had complete control 
over the film um, where he wasn't subject like he could make he had final cut I guess it would be the contemporary way to say it <laughs> um, man a dog's life is so adorable and sweet and has like um, it has a much better ending than the immigrant it, it has, oh, it has a much more heartwarming the ending. ending of a dog's life is my favorite thing it is so sweet like how his whole his dream in life is to literally just like I just want to be a farmer like you know he it starts off with him being poor and living in like a back lot literally and then going to the unemployment line where he's like trying to get in line and <laughs> there are two different lines and he keeps trying to go back and forth but in, and he keeps getting bumped, he keeps out, of getting the way. bumped out of the way and it's so funny and like he just plays it so beautifully um well, but like he, was, he was a living cartoon at times he really and was yeah he one of the things that's so great about Chaplin is he was able to infuse that drama and comedy in a way that you were laughing while you should have felt sad for him and mm. feeling sad when he's doing things that are fun. Like it, it's just constantly back and forth in such a seamless way. It's so, it's just so humane. Like his, yeah. his films are just so human and, yeah, man, I love the way that he blends those things together. And it's like, even when something, even when bad things are happening in his movie, by the end of them, you just are filled with joy. Like, it's just so beautiful. But my favorite, I think one of my favorite sight gags of any of the movies I saw is at the end of this movie where, like, he settles down and he's a farmer now. And it's like, oh, like, he's got the life that he wants. He didn't really even want to be, like, some rich guy or anything. He just wanted to have a, a decent life where he could work and make something of himself. And, yeah. And at the end, like, they have the scene where they go over to, like, the baby carriage and they look inside and it's a puppy and it's just like the funniest it's It's the dog it's so adorable Uh, i love it um yeah that that one was probably one of my favorites that i watched in part because it reminded me of my old dog did you watch easy street i did not watch easy street Street, i think was my favorite one that i watched that one's so much fun it's it's one that i was nervous about because it's one where charlie chaplin becomes a police officer and um like it starts off where he goes to a church and he has this kind of religious epiphany that he's a bad person and he needs to turn things around and the way you figure this out is because he starts to walk away and then he turns around and he brings back the offering box like he had stolen the offering (laughs) box and felt guilty about it and he brings it back it's so so funny did you watch the cure I did not watch the cure the the cure is not my favorite of his films but uh it's about Chaplin is an alcoholic, and so, like, he goes to, like, one of the hot spring um, rehab-type centers. Uh And over the course of the film, things transpire to where just a ton of liquor gets poured into, like, one of these little wells where people are getting their, quote, healing waters from. (laughs) That sounds awesome. But nobody realizes (laughs) it. And so all of these people are drinking this healing water and just getting shit-faced. Oh, gosh, that's awesome. So, like, they all start dancing, and it turns into just this giant party. It's it's kind of hilarious. There's a very fascinating connection between that and Easy Street then, because in Easy Street, he becomes a police officer because he wants to make the world a better place. And he starts off by immediately, like, beating someone who laughs at him. And it's like, oh, this might be... This might be unfortunately topical, but then it like really surprises me because he has to go fight um, this. Uh, it's the same guy who plays the waiter in Bottinger. No, what? It's the guy no. from your RoboCop. Well, yeah, no, but I was like, <laughs> wait a minute. Um, it's the same guy who plays the waiter in The Immigrant who's got like those cartoonish eyebrows and he's clearly the inspiration for like Bluto. Probably. Yeah, I was, I was just about to say That's, the Bluto of the Charlie Chaplin world. Uh, man, I wrote his name down somewhere, but I can't remember where. But um, he's like a big bully and Charlie has to go fight or the tramp, I guess we should say, um, has to go, you know, fight him because this guy's like beating up all the people in town. And no matter how many times he hits him with his baton, nothing happens. And he eventually ends up like 
the guy knocks over a street lamp and because they're gas powered lamps the way that the tramp defeats him is by putting his face in front of the gas and knocking him out (laughs) which is very crazy um but anyway like it becomes in the end the way that he ends up like kind of winning out is he ends up sitting on the needle of a drug addict and it imbues him basically with superpowers and he fights off like all these people because they don't like the cops and it's just it is the craziest thing ever but then ultimately what i love about this one is that in the end the way that they actually combat all the violence on easy street because it's known as being like this horrible you know wretched hive of scum and villainy kind of thing the way that they end up um, like triumphing over this and re- they reform these people by building a mission on mm. the street and like building a church and helping them by giving them food. And like it shows him befriending like the big brute in the end who in another scene is like beating a woman, which is actually really kind of shockingly violent. Hmm. Um, and like it's just so sweet and sincere. And ultimately it's like, yeah, you can't just beat all these people who are like they are criminals because of the situation that they're in because they are desperate. And I was like, that is such a profound message for a film of this time. I I absolutely love it. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. There's, I was afraid that it was going to be like, yeah, the police just go in and beat the criminals and that's how we triumph. And no, like it ended up subverting my expectations in such a beautiful, hilarious way. And that's what they had been doing until he was a part of it. And, God, I love Charlie Chaplin. <clears throat> Even though there certainly are faults and not all of his movies are perfect, they're just they they have such a heartwarming message that even when there's some things they're like, yeah, product of its time. If you can get past some of those things, uh they're 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 still just so great. All right, there are two more specific films that I want to talk about, not necessarily in as much depth as we probably already have, and then one movie that I don't want to talk about, but I feel like we have to. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> the uh, the last two that I want to talk about, um, the first one is Frankenstein from 1910, uh, not directed by, but produced by Edison, uh, directed um, by J. Cyril, Dol- Cyril, Cyril Dolly. Dolly. Yeah. It's a hard name to pronounce. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Frankenstein, which, you know, it's it's fine. It's a very loose translation of Frankenstein. Dr. Frankenstein goes off to college and discovers um, the gift of immortality somehow and then <laughs> goes back to his wife. But his creature also follows him uh-huh. and is angry at him. And then, I, yeah, somehow he triumphs. Whatever. The creation scene in this movie <clears throat> is really cool. There are two things that I love about this movie. Three things. First off, it's just, yeah, a horror film from 1910. So that's awesome. It is one of the early, early, early days of horror cinema. And I love Frankenstein. So, or the Frankenstein story. So I I love the fact that it exists. The two things specifically that I love about this, because the rest of it is just kind of like, eh. It's really, this is one of the ones where, like, I usually don't have this complaint, but this one felt very slow. Yeah, because well, yeah. because it is like trying to tell a story, but I don't care that much. And part of it is because it does have those dialogue boxes. Yeah, so it's telling rather than showing. They introduce the love interest and all that stuff, and it's like, uh, yeah, it takes a long time the, to get to where it needs to go. It and it's not like. that long. Of a and movie. it's not that long. Yeah. <laughs> so the two things that I love: the first thing is the creation scene because they they have a dummy that they set on fire uh-huh. and then just played it in reverse. Yeah, it's really cool love it especially like when you can actually see the flames going down rather Uh than up it's it's awesome yeah and like it's such a simple technique that watching it nowadays it's like well yeah obviously they just filmed this in reverse but again it's one of those things that if you had been watching this in 1910 you would have been like oh my god that's the 
devil how are they <laughs> yeah probably and i just <laughs> i i can't even begin to put myself in that type of mindset of what would it have been like for someone watching this and not knowing what on earth they are creating like mm-hmm. they probably thought that this man could bring things back to life so yeah. the creation scene is fascinating the scene that i i don't want to say that i love it more but it has more of a uh, a thematic theme that i love that was a that was a very intellectual way for me to say that. <laughs> the, uh, the scene that I love that is more thematic is at the end the when scene. yes, yeah. when you see the uh, the monster and he's looking in a mirror and then the monster disappears, but he's still in the mirror. And then Frankenstein walks in and when he looks in the mirror, he sees the monster, not yeah. himself. And then when his bride comes in, then he sees himself. And because so, love triumphs over all. No, because he is the monster. <laughs> he's the monster. Yeah. And like that is that internal monster that he's trying to hide. And so I love well, the I felt fact. like it was supposed to. It was, I feel like the implication was that be, like because of the love he has for her, he is he is. He oh, has, see, he has I, defeated the monster. I was he not seeing it. that as triumphing over. It's basically the first, the first time the uh, the very common plot twist of we were the same person in the end, like the Fight Club kind of plot twist happened. Spoilers. I <laughs> I was not viewing that as love triumphs the monster. I was viewing that as yep. See, Frankenstein is the monster all along, and he still is a monster. I do like that idea better. But other people can't see the monster in mm-hmm. him because they only see what's on the outside, but he knows what's on the inside. Yeah, I like how it really does try to be more of like a psychological kind of horror than, you know, just, oh, there's a monster. Yeah. I'm scared kind of thing. Yeah. And I, whether or not that was the intention, I have no idea, but that's, uh, that's how I'm watching it. Uh, any any other thoughts on Frankenstein? Because that that was really the only two things. I no, that was about, about it. That the one. only other thing I had was that J. Searle Dolly considered himself to be the first director because he was the first person who was actually hired specifically to direct a movie instead of kind of falling into it, um, which I think is kind of interesting. And he's one of the like people who started the precursor to the DGA, the Directors Guild. Sure, <laughs> those sure. are my fun facts. <laughs> so the other movie that I want to talk about. The Cameraman's Revenge. Dude, The Cameraman's Revenge. It's so this awesome. Was, this was the very first movie that I watched for this. <laughs> um, the Cameraman's Revenge kind of blew my mind. Um, being one of the first, like... It didn't bug you? It it, it did not bug me, no. It re- you know what it reminds me of? Is Eraserhead. <laughs> like, that's what it kept making me think of. Um, but it is an early version, like, an early um, example of a stop-motion film. Um, what's the guy's name? Ladislaw um, Starevich? Starevic was the director of the film. Sure. I can't um, pronounce his name. He was a, uh, he was Russian. He, well, he was, he was born in Russia, but he's like ethnically Polish. I, I was, think I was going to say the film didn't feel like it was Russian to me. Yeah, no, I think it was, um, uh, I can't anyway, Rush, I can't remember Russian. where it was, uh, where it was produced necessarily, but, um, it's, but, it's stop motion bugs. Yeah. Starevic was, um, he was inspired by Emil Cole, who I watched another film. He was like an early pioneer in al- animation. He did this film called Phantasmagory, which is like a stream of consciousness kind of. Uh, it's considered to be the first cartoon, kind of like a precursor to stuff that Disney did. Um, that one was very interesting. It reminded me of Duck Amuck because <laughs> <laughs> sure. it's kind of like a very metatextual commentary on the 
because it shows like his hand drawing and then the drawing comes to life and so it was it was really fun i like that Hmm. one a lot um but anyway cameraman's revenge um so (laughs) sterowix was uh kind of a an entomologist i guess maybe or he was at least interested in bugs sure and he tried to film uh to film beetles fighting but he kept killing the bugs (laughs) because the lights were too hot and so he's like okay i'll just use your corpses to create a film instead so he used dead bugs to create the darkest movie i think we want like this movie is so dark it's like about infidelity and yeah so this beetle it it even starts off with like mr beetle is bored at home i think so so mr beetle Mr. Beetle stepping out is what's happening. Yeah, he he's goes going in, to like strip clubs, and the the stripper is a dragonfly, which is funny. Yeah, he's going to like a, I guess it's like a burlesque kind of show with a dragonfly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so oh, uh, while he's <clears throat> doing that, <clears throat> there is a uh, there's a painter who is also having an affair with Mrs. Beetle. So yeah. they are both <laughs> being unfaithful to each other, and Mr. Beetle comes home and while uh, the grasshopper painter person is there and well, the like grasshopper is the cameraman i was getting to that oh I'm i was sorry. gonna yeah. come back to okay, that okay i'm sorry go ahead i'll let so. you go. <laughs> i'm gonna let you finish <laughs> i'll let you finish but first i'm gonna finish uh yeah so mr beetle comes home and mrs beetle is in flagrante de, de, de insecto and <laughs> he like gets all mad at her and the grasshopper escapes through the chimney and then well, God, the grasshopper, the, I think, was trying to tell her tell her that about his infidelity. No, they were also having an affair. Like that's why he was so mad. I didn't because, really get because the, that there's part of it, also but. that line in in one of those dialogue boxes of something about like, uh, but because Mr. Beetle was a generous man, he forgave her and took her to the movies. <laughs> well, I thought that it, he just assumed that they were having an affair, but he was really there because he had filmed Mr. I, Beetle having an affair. I, I don't know. I either think way, that but. they were also having an affair. But anyways, he takes her out to the movies <sighs> oh, and you've been following this all along. So this isn't just like a surprise ending. The grasshopper uh, is also the projectionist for it, for the <laughs> cinema where they went. And he had been following Mr. Beetle and recording him. And so the movie that they watch is Mr. Beetle stepping out. Mr. Beetle having... Because he goes to a hotel with this dragonfly, which is so fun. Like, and he literally gets into a fight. Like, oh, there, are, there are these, dr- like, really long fight scenes between the beetle and the grasshopper, which are insane. Like, they roll down the stairs of this hotel and crash through a window. And it is... It is fascinating. It's and so it's, good. It's so it was it was so dark and just amazing. Were it not and for the fact that it's insects, yeah, this might have been the darkest. And I don't want to say the saddest because um, like tuberculosis and just other illnesses were so common that of course there's so much mm. of that going on. But those are more of just like this is life and how do people cope with it? But the cameraman's revenge is much more of a, these are the choices people are making. And wow. Yeah. It is. It is a fascinating uh, look into the uh, darker side of the American suburban life. Just, you know, with bugs, (laughs) man. And then Stairwakes, he had a fascinating career. He went on to make this movie called The Story of the Fox, which is with puppets instead. And it's like a huge influence on Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox. Hmm. Um, I'll have to watch. I that. Did, it's it was it was a twenties movie, which I'm I don't know if I'm. It looks disturbing. I, I've started watching some twenties. It films looks disturbing because you know 
<laughs> we're supposed to record on that one very soon um oh yeah we probably should have mentioned that this is a two-part episode we're putting out uh these early days of cinema and then our 1920s episode mm. uh just a couple of days apart potentially even just one day apart so yeah this is only part one of uh of these early days and then hopefully we'll get back on track for march the only other movie that we i feel like we kind of skipped a little bit was the great train robbery did you, you watch that one right yeah i watched that one there were some interesting things about it I it's did. got that iconic uh cowboy shooting at the camera at the end i like um, that one a lot edwin s porter is kind of an interesting he was a guy who he was american started off as an electrician who ended up working for um the edison company and being kind of like the first like really influential American filmmaker who kind of went on to inspire D.W. Griffith. Um, he's the guy mm. who kind of, yeah, which that, mm. that lead, that's a good segue into our last mm. movie. But um, he, uh, Porter, Porter is the guy who established continuity editing, um, <laughs> like editing things across scenes and really making, um, making things, making things flow from one scene to the next kind of, but I really liked the great train robbery. That I, one was fun. I liked it. And there were definitely some very important things that were done in it. And it is definitely something that it, it is definitely worth watching. It's very and violent too. <laughs> it is surprisingly violent for how early it is. Throw that guy off the train is really rough. It, even though it's, it is very first, important. First Western. If to, was it? Well, like first, yeah. I mean, there's, there's an argument to be made that there's a British film for a few years prior that was kind of the first Western. It's probably but, better than. Um, uh, yeah. So like it, it is definitely important. It's definitely worth seeing if you are going through your own uh, history of cinema retrospective. Yes, of course you need to watch the great train robbery compared to everything else that I watched. I thought I, it was, I really liked, it. I thought like it had cr- like incredible shot compositions and has the camera actually moving and panning. And it has like, you know, it's, it's the Western is just so ingrained in, in American pop culture and especially in cinema is like, I don't know. I just, I really enjoyed it a lot. And it also was the first use of like, uh, somebody shooting at someone's feet and making them dance. And Scorsese, <laughs> that's pretty great. Scor- Martin Scorsese mentioned that like Goodfellas is essentially kind of a remake of the great train robbery <laughs> in some respects. And like, it ends with the same shot of, uh, Joe Pesci, like shooting into the camera, same as, a. Uh, the great train robbery has, has that the guy who shoots into the camera I at the end that. is ju- his name is justice D Barnes or T Barnes, which is just like the best, the most amazing like cowboy <laughs> name, even though that's his actual name. <laughs> no, I'm uh, pretty sure he made that up. It it's might a be, a st- name. might be a stage name. I don't know, but that's just find that funny. But, um, and also it might've been an influence on the, uh, James Bond, uh, oh, barrel sure sequence. Was. I, it's, it's it's also the first film to actually be remade by a different filmmaker. Um, I don't know. It's I really enjoyed it a lot, and it's so, so important to the history of American cinema. I don't I disagree. It. I don't disagree with anything that you're saying. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I didn't I didn't have as much fun with that as I did like with some Amelies or with oh uh, yeah, I mean. or, or with Chaplin or <laughs> with Cameraman's Revenge. It's yes, it is very very important. Uh, it's, yeah, I, I don't disagree with anything that you're saying. Yeah. Now, let's talk probably not for very long because eh, I don't know, man. I have, I have a lot of thoughts. So speaking of movies uh, that are important, speaking of movies that are, that, are, that are unfortunately important and also like we, we need to preface this with racism is stupid. Uh-huh. Racism is stupid. Yeah. It is terrible. It is evil. It is vile racists are <laughs> bad bad people racism is a very 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 bad thing period that's been it yeah 
And that's right. good for this episode. <laughs> so, so the one specter that was uh. looming over me this whole thing was every time I looked up a list, I kept seeing Birth of a Nation, The Birth of a Nation. Um, it, you know, it's it's the movie that is considered to be the first true movie. It's the movie sure. that really like took all of these different things that we're talking about and all these different movies about, you know, close-ups and continuity editing and location shooting and all of these different things and put them together to create what we really like now know as racist as as racism (laughs) as movies um and i was like you know what i've i've i didn't want to at first and i was like dude it's a three and a half hour long silent film you should have watched (sighs) uh what is it the uh, no uh les vampires the vampire that's kind of a vampires that was like a serial yeah it was like it was put together i started watching that one and i was like ooh, i'm enjoying this but i do not have six hours to devote to this right now. well and in my mind Birth of a Nation is so much more important to film history. <sighs> important is is maybe not the re- best word, but so yeah, I watched the Birth of a Nation um, over the course of like five different sittings, and so okay, let's let's do this. So we all know that Birth of a Nation is a film where in the end the KKK swoop in and they're the heroes. Um, I didn't really know anything else about the movie other than that. So it's a film that's divided into two parts. The first part is about the Civil War. And it follows these two families, the Stonemans and the... Uh, hold on, I have to pull up my notes because I can't remember. The Stonemans and the Camerons. Uh, one family's from the north, one family's from the south. And they ended up end up getting pitted against one another during the Civil War. And the film posits itself as like an anti-war picture. And, um, you know, like... Anti-war or anti-northern aggression? Because y- um, yes, see, anti. I've not watched it, so I I have n- I have not. I have nothing to actually say about this movie. And again, I recognize its importance in cinema history. At some point, I am going to watch it. I've got to. too much other crap that I just didn't this, feel no, this, like it. And this movie has a gratuitous use of inner titles and like to the point that it is calling attention to the fact that you're watching a movie and is like the following is a scene that is a facsimile of you know this battle in the civil war or whatever and anyway so So was it anti-war or anti-northern aggression i think that it thinks it's anti-war um but i'm gonna get to that because the way that it the way that it um resolves its thesis is fascinating and super problematic so um it starts off like showing these two families meeting together and um, then it goes off into these, to be honest, genuinely riveting battle sequences. I mean, I mean, they are absolutely incredible. Like he's using these panoramic shots of battlefields and just like thousands of extras. And the thing that's fascinating about D.W. Griffith and the reason why I think he's so well known is because like in the story of film series, Mark Cousins says that the reason why D.W. Griffith is important is because he showed us the wind in the trees. You know, all of these other movies that we've talked about are very much stage-bound. Like, filmmakers shot movies from the perspective of watching a play. So you almost always had, like, medium, like, wide shots of people. And, you know, you didn't get a whole lot of camera movement. Um, It was essentially like, you didn't get a whole lot of, like insert shots or like close-ups or any of that kind of stuff but dw griffith is the first person to really kind of free the camera have it move around i mean have it move around and have like these huge battle sequences and they're edited to the point where like they're really 
easy to follow geographically. I mean, truly, these battle sequences are brilliant, especially considering he didn't actually have a script. Like, he just had the film pieced together in his mind before he shot them. And it's it's extraordinary. And it's also, like, there's a scene where the like the brothers of the f- different families all end up having to go fight in the war. And you get a scene where the Cameron brother and uh, a Cameron brother and a Stoneman brother meet up in battle and they're like, Oh my God, it's you. And then they're both killed and they like fall into each other's arms. And it is a genuinely moving sequence that like gets to the point of like, yeah, war is stupid. And why are these people fighting? They don't actually like, they're not the reason why this battle is actually happening. And now they've been pitted against each other. And the way that they come together in the middle of this battle, even though they're enemies is truly beautiful and touching. And then after the civil war battle, you get a depiction of the Lincoln assassination. And even though like the, the way that they depict the Ford theater is beautiful beautiful and breathtaking and even though there's a part where you're watching like an american or my american cousin the play it still is not shot like you're watching a play like you get this grand view of the entire ford theater and it's just gorgeous and beautiful <laughs> and you know when lincoln is assassinated it's shocking and violent and it, it it's truly extraordinary so that's the first part of the movie sure so After far that, sounds not terrible after that it leads into racism reconstruction this part two is reconstruction and holy shit this movie (laughs) i I was really not sufficiently prepared because the reconstruction era is trying to tell about what happened in america after the end of the civil war it's also weird because it's very much like it treats Abraham Lincoln as if he is a god, which is fascinating because it's clearly told from a southern perspective. And like there's a scene where you get like the southerners and it they have a newspaper and it says, like, our friend Lincoln has been assassinated. And it's like, uh, did Southerners really like Lincoln? Because pretty sure they didn't. It feels like a weird it's weirdly reverent of Abraham Lincoln, despite clearly siding with the Confederates. Um anyway, so the second part of this movie is Literally an alternate history. That could have been, though, a a sort of uh, revisionist history. Oh, it's absolutely. Of of just like, no, see, we're totally not anti-American. He's our president. You're the ones who are being anti-American because you're the ones who... Yeah, I, no, like, for sure. That's really like, what it is. I, I almost expect someone in the uh, I, I almost expect someone in Birth of a Nation to say thanks, Lincoln. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and the funny thing too is like before part two even begins, <laughs> it actually has like a disclaimer pop up. There's a disclaimer that pops up at the beginning of the movie, which is interesting. Um, but before part two, it says um, this is an historical presentation of the Civil War and Reconstruction, and is not meant to reflect on any race or people today. Granted, the Civil War ended only like you know, 30 years prior to the making of this movie. Uh, So uh, anyway, um, so what happens is you have um, this, the Stoneman patriarch is, um, he's called the great radical because he wants to, because he seeks equality. Like he is trying to get um, the freed, the black freedmen to have representation in um, the legislature of, I can't remember the state that they're in. Okay. Sounds um, good so far. 
So what ends up happening is the black characters end up gaining the right to vote and literally disenfranchise the white characters where like they prevent the white people from voting. It shows the the and of course they're they're white actors in black. Sure. You know, because because according to um, D.W. Griffith, there weren't enough Negro actors and I'm quoting him here. There were enough Negro actors to play these characters. Because like people wouldn't hire like I just I just can't wrap my head like his the contradiction in that is astounding how like ignorant he is anyway so they disenfranchise the white voters steal the election and then there are scenes of the electorate where the black men have taken over they're literally like sticking their feet up on the things they are eating fried chicken it is just every racist stereotype you've ever heard of in in one scene and it is one of the most like infuriating things I've ever seen in a movie. And the reason why, like they take over the legislature and they pass a law that makes interracial marriage legal. And this movie treats this as like the greatest tragedy that has ever happened in American history. And the crazy thing is this movie is literally trying to say that this is, these things are actually happening. Like because it's juxtaposing it with actual historical events, like they are saying that like, yeah, this is, real that this these things really happen in american history so what you're saying is this is propaganda that it is propaganda 100 people currently probably take it still as truth yeah i mean 100 unfortunately then you get like scenes where because interracial marriage has been legalized now the black men become these savages who just start chasing white women and try to rape them and then this woman jumps off of a is being chased by a black man at one point and literally jumps off of a cliff to preserve her innocence and kills herself and then the kkk come in and have a quote-unquote trial for this black man and they kill him and throw him on the steps of the of the house of representatives for this state that they're in and um would would that state be denial because (laughs) yeah i mean and then like after this like there's a scene where basically the the whole thesis of the movie is like yeah, now what's happening is the former enemies of the North... This is a quote, a direct quote from one of the intertitles. Former enemies of the North and South are united again in common defense of their Aryan birthright. Um, so the end of the movie, the KKK come in and they save the day. And uh, like the... Because the because the legislature is now like riots are breaking out in the town and the um, KKK sympathizers end up getting tarred and feathered and... So the KKK have to ride in and save all these people, and then they disenfranchise the the black people at this point, and like stand like the next time the election comes around, they stand in front of them with guns and prevent them from voting. And I shit you not. So the ending, this, this was filmed in uh, 2016, then, right? So the ending of this movie here's here's, here's <laughs> what gonna, really it's gonna pass right by well, that no, comment. I have to I have to before I address that I have to address this other thing. The ending of this movie. Um, has it it shows like this uh, scene where there's like this giant figure of war or something oppressing the masses Um, and it's like a like a dream sequence or something I guess and then that figure dissolves and is replaced by the image of Jesus and the people are saved and basically like the ending of the movie literally says liberty and union one and inseparable now and forever and to that, in my notes, I literally put, go f*** yourself, D.W. Griffith. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's this weird paradoxical argument that's like, yeah, we need, we're need we arguing for reconciliation, but basically not, not because we, we're arguing against war, 
not because it's bad to fight one another, but because we have to unite against this other common enemy that we have. This ac- the actual enemy of progress are the freed black people. According it's, to the movie. According to make, the movie. Make yeah. sure you add that. <laughs> um, so, That's... man, it's, it's one of those things where, like, you watch a movie like this, and it's like, I understand, like, as a piece of filmmaking divorced of the context of the story they're trying to tell, it's understandable why it's important. I mean, this, he's using, taking all these techniques and actually really, truly creating the language of cinema as we know it today. Um, it's the first parts, especially like it's, there's a scene even in the second part where when the KKK are riding in, um, there's cross cutting between like the riots in the town and the KKK coming in. And then there's like these other people who are defending some cabin out in the woods or out in a field. And like the way that he shows all of these things happening simultaneously is groundbreaking for the time. Um, and it was an absolute cultural phenomenon. Like this movie had KKK tie-in merchandise. And the crazy thing is like, for even for its time, it was controversial. Like even in 1915, there were people who were like, who, uh, maybe this is kind of racist, <laughs> which is wild. Um, I don't know, man. I have such conflicting feelings. I mean, so let's let's put it this way. So I read Roger Ebert's review of this movie, and he has he gave it like a four out of four, and says it's one of the great movies. And he's his his argument is basically like, yeah, this is not necessarily a bad movie because it argues for evil. He compares it to like Lenny Riefenstahl's documentary Triumph of the Will, which is a piece of propaganda. And it's like, yeah, it's a great movie, not necessarily because it is like it is a great movie, even though it is arguing for evil because of the cultural context, like watching this movie, you can maybe learn a little bit about good and evil. You get insight into human nature because like D.W. Griffith and Thomas Dixon Jr., uh, who's the writer of the novel that this is based on were like sincerely believed that all of these things in here were true and they didn't think that the movie was racist at all and they were actually angered by all like surprised and angered by all of the criticism that they received when it came out because like the NAACP tried to ban it in different cities and they were just completely shocked that this would happen um because they just they were just telling history they were just it was just a historical document but to the point where like they oh my god some of the defenses of this movie are insane where thomas dixon jr was like well um they're not really mad like they don't understand that this movie isn't racist um they just my novels are hard reading for a quote-unquote negro is is the way that thomas dixon jr said so they just don't understand the context of the movie and then um you know griffith was saying that you know, NAACP was mad just because the movie is against interracial marriage because, you know, clearly if black people are mad, it's only because they just want to marry white people. They want to be white themselves. And, sure. Uh, dude, this. Uh, oh, my God. As a as a movie, let's let's start here as a piece of as a movie. I cannot take a look. I cannot look at it the way that someone like Roger Ebert looks at it. I cannot divorce the story that they're trying to tell from the context of the movie because that is the movie a movie is a story right and it is a movie that is <clears throat> arguing that these people should be oppressed that these people are dangerous and and it is making that argument through revisionist history and further suppressing a minority group and this is the movie that led to the resurgence of the kkk 
And so it's one of those things where it's like, as a piece of history, I think it is worth examining and worth reckoning with, which is kind of like what Roger Ebert gets into with his review. You know, he's clearly struggling with his ideas on this movie. And it's like, yeah, I mean, as a piece of cinema, it's important. But and as a piece of history, it's important to study to understand like how in 1915, these people were completely oblivious to their racism and angered that people were upset. Like D.W. Griffith ended up making intolerance, which Ebert says as an attempt as an as an at an apology, um, because he didn't understand how racist his movie was. But <laughs> I think it's kind of clear from a lot of other historical contexts that Griffith wasn't didn't feel like he had anything to apologize for. He well, made intolerance that- because people were intolerant of his views in Birth of a Nation, and he was mad that people were trying to censor his right to free speech because the movie opens <laughs> with, oh, th- you know what? I'm sorry that this movie upsets you, but I have a right to free speech, which doesn't sound topical at all in 2020. I, I was going to say, that sounds like so many people that I've heard that will say things along the lines of, I'm not racist, but, and then whatever they say, or like, no, I'm not racist, but I mean, you know, those those Muslims really do or whatever or like racial these, stereotype. Like a lot of these, I'm like, not racist, but I mean, you know, if black people really wanted to, mm-hmm. and whatever racist comments, I'm not racist, but if they got shot, they must have been doing something illegal. Yeah, like, no, I know, and it reminds me too of like how like people who are so much anger right who now. end up like getting banned from speaking on college campuses. They're like, oh, they're suppressing my right to free speech, and it's like, no, they're they don't want you spreading your hateful rhetoric at the, like and an institution has the right to say we don't want your shit here like yeah people have such a fundamental misunderstanding of free speech and this is not going to turn into a political podcast in part because it's impossible we, not we, to we need to wrap things up we i mean a don't movie have is a, a political text in t- inherently anyway but but like the 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 30 second uh here's your um uh political science lesson on free speech Free speech does not mean that you get to say whatever the hell you want without any repercussions from anyone. What free speech is, is the government cannot punish you for your statements. But mm-hmm. even even that, there's still contextual things of like, unless it is outright hate speech or um, like uh, perpetuating violence or so even with the, well, the government can't stop me. I, well, there's still like other parts of the hate speech and things that you just can't yeah. say period but like yeah if i walk down the street just spouting off words of hate and someone beat me up i can't say they're suppressing my free speech it's like no no they're not because the government wasn't stopping me like, yeah absolutely that, that is why sometimes even though even though like there's a part of me that gets angry i also really understand why cops will sometimes not when when requested cops will be escorts for like kkk parades yeah it's not that the cops are supporting what's being done it's nope they're like that is an example of free speech where it's like we do not agree with what's being said they filled out the proper paperwork and we're just here to make sure that there's no violence that breaks out yeah but but we're like, even talking about like the charlottesville um, rally or whatever yeah. from a few years ago it was like yeah if they want to have a rally we there's nothing we can do to stop them from from reserving this space yeah now when Cracker Barrel when Cracker yeah. Barrel said we don't want that racist dude holding his rally here in Cle- yeah in Cleveland Tennessee yeah that was not an example 
of uh, denial of free private. speech. Yeah, that was a private company saying, "Don't bring your hate speech in here." So it drives me crazy when people it. get mad when they're like banned on Facebook or Twitter, and they're like, "Oh, my free speech is being suppressed." It's like, no, those are private corporations. Yeah. They are companies. They are allowed to do whatever they want with their platforms. They're yeah. not in- the government. Infringement of free speech would be the government saying. You can't post that because yeah. we don't agree with what you're saying. But yeah, Griffith was That's, literally like writing yeah. letters to newspapers and putting out pamphlets saying that this is a, an affront to his right to free speech and stuff. And was he trying to make cinema great again? He was trying to make cinema great again. And yeah, I mean, it's I don't know, man. It's one of those things where it's like watching the movie under a certain context. It, it's one of the most repugnant, vile, horrifying pieces of propaganda <sighs> I've ever seen in my life. I never want to watch it again, but I'm not necessarily mad that I watched it because I feel like I, it's a fantastic history lesson, like doing research into it. And I know the context of it now. And I at least know that like, even in 1915, there were people who were outraged by this movie. Like it was banned in the city of Chicago and, uh, but also it was, you know, screened at the white house and Woodrow Wilson is actually quoted in this movie, like talking about, like he had wrote a book that was talking about, some of the stuff that's depicted in this movie and it's just pure propaganda and nonsense. And it's, yeah, man, like it's, it's one of those things like kind of getting, I, I would compare it to like the Confederate monument to get political again, <laughs> controversy where it's like, this is not a movie that should be celebrated, but it is a movie that there is merit in the historical context. Because like I said, it was a huge cultural phenomenon. It, I mean, it, but, but it should be one of those things where much like monuments that, uh, I, uh, yeah. <clears throat> Which can, the Confederate it, mon- the, monument argument where it's like, it's a historical thing. It's, it should be in a museum where there can be education surrounding exactly. this in the context of it. Not I think propping that up and honoring war criminals. Exactly. I mean, or, you know, I mean, <laughs> I think that that's what should be happening with birth of a nation. Uh, cause didn't you watch it on, uh, on Amazon? It was on Amazon it on? prime. Yeah. yeah. So like, I feel like Amazon prime should have an unskippable like history lesson before <laughs> getting to it of look, this is the context of it. And these are the, like the real things that you mm. need to understand and actually provide some history. I like, I understand why they don't, well, that's but why like, it's I, like, I feel like that's how the movie needs to be seen. Mm. Having not seen it myself is with that educational context of this is why, especially the ending is so horribly racist. And this is the impact that it has had on society since then. And this is why you still hear people saying mm. things that that are mentioned in this movie this is why you still have it's kind of sad like it's 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 both shows like how far we've come and also how much farther we need to go because so much of it feels so relevant to things that we're dealing with today um but yeah and and it's why it's great like to see movies like black klansman which has portions of birth of a nation in it and it talks about how like um david duke when he was grand wizard or whatever the hell it is over the kkk he (laughs) used this movie to recruit people like I said, like the KKK would not be nearly as prominent as it is today if this movie never existed. So yeah. the other thing that I think is very instructive and it's important to realize in the grand scope of things is we've talked about the power of cinema and how it can be used to generate yep. empathy and how wonderful it is to bring people together. But there's a flip side to that. And the flip side is that you can make a movie that can influence people the wrong in the wrong way. Like it is a movie that... <sighs> 
for better or worse, is important because it shows that a film has this huge cultural footprint that can completely influence people and their feelings about an entire race of people for years to come. Yep. Um, and especially in those early, early, early days, because you said this was what, 1915? 1915. Yeah. So, like, m- like movies. Well, not just like, you know, full length movies, but anything beyond just uh, like my bridges, proof of concept type stuff. It had only been 15 years of of stuff. And so some people, this might have been one of the first things that they ever saw. And so, again, especially in those early days of cinema where there is more of the uh, what I'm seeing is real, which is probably why there are those contexts of this is a representation is to kind of let people know you're watching a movie. Yeah. But even within that, I, I would imagine that so many people watching it didn't understand this is one person's view of their world. Most people were probably watching it as, oh, yeah. so that's what happened before well, I was born. And, the way that, and one of the other things I didn't mention, too, is the way that a lot of people who defended the film rationalized it was like, yeah, this is all of the stuff in this movie is true. But um, what's great about that is look how far your race has come since since the Civil War. And yeah. it's like, oh, no, that is not like, that, I mean, again, like it it's, is it is insane mm, how much that reminds so me of frustrating. people say racism doesn't z- exist anymore. We had a black president. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, no, racism still exists. Oh, my God. And unfortunately, Why? like that made it so much Why? more obvious yeah. how bad how like racism is so much worse than I ever really understood as a kid uh-huh. because of a recent events in history. And yeah, like we're not turning this into a political podcast, but when I was growing up, I thought that racism was like, like, like evil, like racist are like, you know, mm-hmm. like, like monsters. Like when you see a racist, you will know a racist. Yeah. And, and, and then it's just like, Oh no, racists are more like vampires. They're the people that we thought we knew and loved. But um, have no soul. Yeah, and they've been but, emboldened in recent years by recent, I mean, current events. And man, yeah, it's awful. Yeah. So yeah, it's. I feel so torn on this movie because on the one hand, I fucking hate it. I think it is a despicable, horrible piece of trash. And like, I I gave it a half a star on because I feel like that is what a half a star is for. It is for movies that are morally reprehensible in some way, not just inept or something. Um, this movie is reprehensible in every way I can think. I mean, it is truly infuriating yeah and i'm, I'm sure that as we continue on there's going to be other things that we see that are going to be really hard to watch mm-hmm. but like the context is going to make it a little bit more palatable yeah in terms of like ah that's or, like in old movies when uh when people refer to women as dames it's like that's that's not cool okay yeah i mean it is also contextual like, yeah mm, doesn't mean we should start doing it again but it also doesn't mean that when they were saying it, that they were being malicious. Fine, yeah. I get it. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's one of those things yeah. where like I'm, I feel torn because it's like I'm. I mean, I'm not mad that I watched it. I'm glad. I feel like I got a great history lesson. I think it is like I recognize its importance to both history and cinema. Um, but I also wish it didn't exist because it its influence is overwhelmingly negative. Like I, it is one of the only cases where I feel like I can say that if this movie didn't exist, the world would be a better place and mean it. Yeah. Um, but again, I mean, I do feel like it's a movie that if you go into it with the right mindset, you can learn something from it and you can grow as a human being in some way by seeing just how awful it is. And it's, it's one of the reasons too, why I struggle with the argument about how movies 
do not cause violence. I don't think movies cause violence necessarily, but I also think that sometimes people can be very disingenuous with that argument because movies do influence us in certain ways. Like it's not going to create a violent tendency in a person who does not already have those tendencies, but the influence of movies should not be underestimated in any way. And that's why parents need to be careful about what they show their kids and things and not necessarily why we need to blame movies for greater ills of society. It it, it just feels like they're often a scapegoat. Yeah. And like, Um, I'm especially torn on that. We've really have to wrap things up. I'm especially torn on that because, you know, like there is a lot of psychological research of the impact of, uh, of observational learning Mm -hmm. of watching someone else do something. And even though people know that movies are fake, it does still have an impact. Mm -hmm. It can, you know, like watching John wick or James Bond where, you know, killing people is cool, you know, like, yeah, it's like, I love those movies, but, but I, I feel so hypocritical when I talk to my kids about violence and stuff because I'm like, yeah, I love John Wick and watching him kill hundreds of people. But then, like, I have to talk to my kids about guns and stuff. And or even just, like, why not to hit someone on the playground yeah. that you disagree with? But then we also talk to our kids about, like, you need to stand up for yourself and don't let people bully uh-huh. you. And you need to stand up for the for the weak. And you need to stand up when you see someone else being abused. And so, like, it is a very complicated uh, conversation, especially to have with kids. Mm. But even just that relationship of what impact does cinema have, it has a tremendous impact, but also it can't be blamed for people's actions. Like people are still responsible for what they do because, I mean, the world has an impact on you. So you can't just go around blaming everything. But that also doesn't mean that. That that doesn't mean that movies shouldn't at least be aware of the impact. Oh yeah, for and, sure. And and have some of those discussions surrounding it. Mm-hmm. Um, That's why we have podcasts. Exactly. So we can discuss these kind of things. Exactly. But yeah, and it's like it's like Roger Ebert at the end of his review. He's like, if we're to see Birth of a Nation, we must see all of it and deal with it. So it's like, yeah, I mean, but but that's the thing. It's a and, gr- he, and he argues it's a great movie, it. not because. He, it is doing something good or that it's a piece of art, but because it is something, I mean, it's kind of like it's preserved in the library of Congress because the library of Congress preserves movies that are culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And, for better or worse, unfortunately, this movie is all three of those things. Let's talk about something very briefly that is uh, betterment of society. Um, the documentary A Band Called Death has screened at and is now in the library of Congress. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Well, it's not I, like preser- selected for preservation. Was it not? No. Oh, it's just screened there? Well, because it has to be ab- it has to be like 20 years after the movie, 20 oh. or 25 years afterward. But yeah, it was screened well, there. Well, so. it was screened at, uh, screened at the Library of Congress. So uh, yeah, if you want to watch a good movie, <laughs> watch the documentary A Band Called Death. Yeah, that's, man. That's that's a good movie. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't, I don't have the emotional energy to deal with a birth of nation right I now. Know, I just... But- Ugh. But yeah, it's also All a good right. thing to end on because this is the film that ushered in really Hollywood as an industry. It's the point where people saw that films could be more than just gimmicks and it, there was a you could truly build an industry around this medium and that's like kind of the perfect segue into the 20s, which is the golden the golden uh, era of Hollywood. Yeah. So that's what we'll but, be talking about next time. But the 30s are when we have Universal Monsters. So oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the next episode is going to deal with the 1920s. And again, that episode is going to be coming out very soon, possibly tomorrow uh, and possibly in, in just a couple of days. So it might actually technically be in March when it's released. But again, we're catching up on having six sick kids 
So yeah, we're we're just playing a little catch up with these episodes. Yeah, but man, this has been fun. Yeah, I'm, I love having I'm, these conversations. I'm really looking forward to the rest of these. Uh, I'm I'm excited about the twenties. I am super excited about the thirties because for me, that's basically just going to be a Universal Monsters episode. And yeah, during that episode, I have a feeling that uh, I might or might not be bringing up one of the more recent episodes of Screen Drafts. Oh yeah, for sure. I just oh, that was a good episode. Was, um, yeah. Man, the twenties has been a real treat for me. Like I've discovered so many incredible and, and some incredible surprises, both um, in terms of like something being much better than expected and also something not living up to what I would expect it to be. So, well, we will get into what that is, uh, in the next episode. And then after the twenties episode, we're, uh, we're getting back into our quote unquote, regular scheduled programming. I don't know. We're going to be talking (laughs) about some CFF stuff. Uh, March is going to be very CFF. (laughs) What? March is going to be very CFF centric. Um, again, not necessarily in terms of like directly tied to the movies. Some of them might just be, uh, other movies inspired by what's going to be screening at CFF. For example, the remake of Castle Freak is going to be premiering. Premiering or just screening? Premiering. Okay, good. Yeah. That's, what, that's what I thought, but then questioned myself. Uh, it's going to be premiering at Chat Film Fest. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, super excited about that because I only just recently watched the original Castle Freak because of that announcement. So that might be one of the ones that, that we discuss because... Ooh, man, I got lots of things to say about the original Castle Freak. It is way better than I was expecting. Um, Yeah, so it it might be that one, might be other movies. So it's going to be things related to, but not necessarily directly tied to CFF, being the Chat Film Fest, which you can find out more information, including all of their announcements at chatfilmfest.org. All right, Eric, where do you want people to find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at the Chimerican and on Instagram at Chimerican Reviews and on Letterboxd at Eric J A Y. And you can find me on Letterboxd at the Gargoyle. And you can also uh, follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Video Monster Pod. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to keep coming back for more of our decades discussion, or just you know any of our other episodes, just do a search for Video Monsters wherever you get your podcasts: um, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts other podcast servers that have the word podcast and what they are (laughs) (laughs) spotify stitcher all those places uh yeah and if you're enjoying this leave some reviews leave some comments let us know what you think all right that's been it for this episode of video monsters i'm nathan and i'm eric and remember kids um movies do have an influence on you so be, be aware of what you watch and also don't be racist yeah, and also watch some of these old movies, not Birth of a Nation. I mean, yeah, don't, I mean, don't you watch can that if you one. want to. Just if, don't be racist. Just yeah. Um, from an academic perspective, you can watch it, but if you're look if you're watching it and uh, for entertainment, maybe maybe you need to do some reflecting. Yeah, what, watch Millier, watch Chaplin, watch Buster Keaton. He's more of the twenties, but still, watch. Uh, oh, watch Explosion of a Motor Car. Watch Explosion of a Motor Car. It's from 1900. I didn't get to talk about it. Just, um, just don't be racist. Yeah, don't be racist. But man, explosion of motor car is really fun. Yeah, just don't be racist. Yeah, that's that, that's the theme of this episode. Don't be racist. Yeah, don't be. I, I I thought about watching Intolerance, but after watching Birth of a Nation, I was like, man, I can't. I just can't. Yeah, part of the reason <sighs> that I did not watch many of the movies in this uh, thousand and one movies is because most of the ones from nineteen hundreds were D.W. Griffith movies. Yeah, because he was you know like one of the early like you know main movie people and i was just like i don't 
I don't I don't want to deal with that right now. Maybe yeah, eventually I'll go back and watch them. But it's I just it's interesting because <laughs> like Birth of a Nation was celebrated as being one of the greatest movies of all time for a very long time, but I feel like in recent years they've kind of like just replaced it with intolerance. Like on the AFI Top 100, Birth of a Nation was originally there, and then like it completely dropped off the list, and intolerance was added to the list in about the same position. So it's like, uh, eh. sure, we'll give D.W. Griffith credit, um, but eh. with this other movie that pre- that's all about love. Eh. Don't be racist. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really all I have to say. Just don't be racist. Or be sexist, aware. or misogynist, try to, try to, or ageist, or don't be a hateful person. Be try loving. to be aware of your biases. Yes. That's, that's, that's the thing. There's so much... Be, being aware of your biases leads to so many wonderful things. Yes, like, be aware of them to, to then learn about them and try to not have those biases. Don't just be aware of them like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm racist. That's now a, I know. No, no. That, then you're doing it wrong. That's a good opinion to that. Be aware of them so that you can learn from them to be less biased. And grow as a human being. Exactly. Because movies are wonderful and they should not be. It's so, it's so. Sh- we have to wrap things up. I know. We, we can keep talking about this in, in later episodes. I know. Hashtag don't be racist. Yeah, I didn't even get into, like, how reflective this movie is of actual American institutions, like, you know, democracy. And how we're sure. built on the idea that we're all equal while also enslaving an entire race of people. Sure. You know, it feels so appropriate that Birth of a Nation is considered the first great American <laughs> all film. All right, we're done. <laughs> all right. I'm done talking about that. <laughs> all right. Come back next time for our 1920s episode. Shame. Okay, bye.